0: welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and I'm Jake. We've got a fun history episode for you guys today. I'm really excited. about It's That's been a while right. since we did one of these. It has what been have a we minute. got? So I am going to tell the tale of an
1: iconic race, the Paris Dakar Rally. I think it's called the
0: Paris Dakar. Paris Dakar. Yeah. Actually, right. Like today, it's just called the Dakar. The Dakar. So we're just going to call it the Dakar the Rally Dakar. from here on out. Well, yeah, that sounds good to me. Before we get into uh, a little bit about our projects and getting into the Dakar Rally. Why don't you tell us a little bit about our sponsor, Worth?
1: That's right. Our latest sponsor is Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been oper- in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with industry-leading customer service. They've also just launched their world-class hand tool line to the U.S. market. These are German-made tools with a lifetime
0: warranty. They're high quality. This is the good stuff. When you go into a shop and you see the the Worth stuff on the chemicals, this is is the good stuff. Exactly. So
1: head over to worthusa.com to check out all of their products.
0: All right. So... You have been doing a little bit of buying and selling with wheels lately. What have you got going with on? wheeling and dealing. Yeah, with the what's wheels? going on? Did you
1: get it? Yeah, wheeling
0: wheelin and dealing. It's not good. No,
1: all right. So I sold my fifteen fifty two,
0: and those were the Magnus Walker. Those outlaws. are the Magnus
1: Walker 003 or 001 Outlaw, whatever it is. Okay, so those are I gone on the nine eleven.
0: And what did you get? I ordered new wheels. Are you going to tell us yet, or not are you going to keep it a secret? You're keeping Stay it a secret. You, okay,
1: you will know before they go on the car.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Are they? I, I just won't even guess. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to ruin your surprise. But <laughs> all right. Uh, so we've been working on your truck bar though, too, right? That's What's,
1: right. So my dad and I, my dad has been doing the majority of the continued rust repair. I went over there and worked on a whole bunch of stuff. But
0: yeah, he sent you a video while we were
1: yeah. doing some <laughs> other stuff earlier about
0: like a plug welding thing that he yeah, made. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> you got to fabricate your own tools sometimes to get in there. So I also had some take-home homework, I like to call it. We took okay. the driver's door off and put it in my pickup, and I took that home
0: to work. Whoa, whoa, on whoa, whoa, whoa. You cannot refer to your Hummer as a pickup. It is a pickup. No, your Chevy truck is a pickup. Your Hummer is just a truck. They're both pickups. Barely a truck. It barely has enough (laughs) cylinders to be a truck. Four cylinders? No. Five cylinders? Maybe. It's not a pickup. It's a pickup. No, it's a truck, but your pickup. What do you call a truck with a bed? A pickup. No, because if you. No, your your old truck is considered a pickup. Sure. Colloquially, it's a pickup, but your new truck, it just. What's the distinction? Time. Okay, so. So a
1: new chevy uh uh colorado isn't a pickup too big they're too big to a just colorado think, uh, is the uh, smaller one
0: too big it's that's bigger than your truck what do you mean it's, a, it's s- the same thing <laughs> no it's they're physically beefier a Colorado is the
1: exact same
0: How, chassis what, what year was your truck made in 2009 okay so it's now 10 years old are we talking about the new chevy colorado because it is huge <laughs> i didn't think it's that much bigger it's Even for it a some, silverado for somebody silverado is for, that a pickup so for some reason, when I think pickup, I think of like a small Ford Ranger or an old truck or I just don't see like new trucks as being pickup trucks. I just it seems like an old term that just isn't used anymore. That's that. your perception. All right. So what else? What do you got going on? Uh,
1: with that yeah. So I took on the door and there was a little rust spot down there. So cleaning up all that and got to leave the patina. So I'm planning on leaving the patina, but like making everything solid. If okay. that makes sense. Yeah, There's yeah. a distinction, and it's kind of a fine line between like, ooh, how far, far do I go and everything else? Yep. And then you got to kind of try to make it still So what's the still pr- story look- with this door? The door is, it was hit in the driver's side side. So the fender was replaced at one point, the front fender, I believe. That's why it's rusty. Yep. And then also the door, it was like kinked a little bit. So they bondoed it up. So some of the bondo was flaking off and I was like, that looks bad. That's not patina. That's just bad body work. Yeah. And also there was rust in the bottom of the door. So surface rust and the old patina is what I'm going for, but you got to make it look solid. You got to make it solid. So working on that. And then do you, oh, do you have a spot weld remover? Cause I know you're going to be doing a lot of spot
0: weld remover. I did a lot of research and bought like the nicest spot welder. Cause I, I've they're, like,
1: out, they're like mini, mini hole saws.
0: They are. And I've, I've drilled out enough spot welds with regular drill bits to know that that is an absolute nightmare. Yeah. It is the worst thing. You, you start with like a small bit and then you go up to you a big keep, bit. They're but, big. You got to go up to a big bit. The spot weld bits have like a pilot bit in the middle that right. helps hold the bit in the right place. Right. And if you use a little bit of cutting oil, that really helps too. Have you done that yet? No, I haven't used little?
1: it. My dad had used it and told me. it was like, oh man, I'm it glad I ordered little,
0: these. It takes a little bit longer if you use the cutting oil, but you're expensive Bit Bits will last a little, little bit. Out, yeah, okay. Bit so
1: I was going to tell you if you didn't have those, you yep. should invest. Also, I have a lot of spot wells <laughs> to drill out. There's so many. I know so you many. do. Also purchased some new drop spindles. What's a drop spindle? All right, so your front suspension, the steering spindle, right? Mm-hmm. Where the A ARMs connect and then the, your... Yes, your uh, uh, wheel bearing goes on the spindle. Okay. Yes. So a drop spindle just takes that existing spindle and it basically brings the spindle up, in this case, two and a half inches. Okay. So without doing any suspension lowering, you already get two and a half inches Do you have to run bigger wheels because of this? No. Uh So here's the thing though. You can get, these are all drum fronts, right? And you can get a drum front spindle because it's different taper on the spindles. But when they're in there, you're like, why wouldn't you just do the brake upgrade? that disc brake upgrade right because you can just take it off of a slightly newer chevy truck and you can go to the junkyard and it all just bolts up so i got drop spindles two and a half inch drop spindles and then we're going to be getting takeoff parts for actual disc brakes up front as well
0: hopefully not take off from anywhere in minnesota because they're going to be awful <sighs> i would go on like car and find yeah. some i just it's just so you don't have to buy brand new you know yeah i'm just saying go find out sign stuff that's not from here That's probably part, Set your zip code as Georgia or something and get the brake (laughs) calipers from there. So
1: that's what's involved in the drop spindles. And so the question then is how low do you want to go? Because so that gives you two and a half inches right away. And the conservative as so the the least amount of drop I'm going to do is seven and a half in the rear and five and a half in the front. That's. Significant. That's a lot of drop. How or much b- I could run a
0: cheap airbag set and get lower. I know. That's why I was
1: thinking, why wouldn't you do air ride on something like this? You will, but you still want to have that two and a half inch drop in the spindles
0: so you can fully tuck. Right. So then you don't have to have the bags doing so much work.
1: That and it's just the way the geometry works, you still need that. Right. Otherwise, memory.
0: it's not going to turn right. It's right. Right. Okay. Well,
1: and, that sounds good. And pickups in general, I think it's interesting that most pickups have a two-inch rake. So even my truck had like a two-inch rake to it, which is why in the truck, I actually raised the front
0: two inches, so it's more level. And then in the- Have you ever referred to your truck, your Hummer, as a pickup ever? Yeah, I have actually. (sighs) Okay. I just did. (laughs) Besides today, I've never heard you say my pickup. My pickup's outside. I changed the oil in my pickup. No, no. it's truck. You've never said pickup before ever, ever, until right now, until you started arguing with me about it right now.
1: It's the Hummer pickup.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. um, so I got my Fender in the mail. Right, my two thousand dollar <laughs> yeah.
1: Fender. Yeah,
0: it came in a big penis-shaped box. Have,
1: instead of that Fender, a uh, C10 project. Oh my god!
0: It's it's so the way I look at it is. I didn't buy a two thousand dollar fender. Okay. I bought kind of like a two thousand dollar piece of mine and a two thousand dollars something that's going to help me do my project right. I guess because you can get cheaper fenders, but I wanted to make sure. Th- so I bolted the fender up to the firewall area, up by the door where the door um, the door hinges are. So right. I bolted it up there because you know that
1: part is is straight
0: theoretically well okay yes. so you don't know but i you think, think that part i is think straight. that part is straight i think okay. we're good there and then i bolted it as far forward as i could on the so as far forward meaning as many holes lined up as many well the the first probably three or four do line up okay and then after that it kind of takes the the front of the car the front clip (sighs) the inner fender takes a dip down and you can see where they cut and they and someone clipped it there or whatever they did you know stevie wonder like i said is the one that did the work on this car (laughs) because it looks terrible and you can actually see the fender comes out about an inch further in the front comes out an inch further it goes beyond goes beyond about an inch wow and it's down or it's above about an inch so it's an inch (laughs) higher and (laughs) an an inch inch farther out (laughs) and when you stand there and you look down at the top of the car you're like yeah i can see it you can see the latch panel is pushed back and if you look at the bottom side it's pushed up is your hood
1: gonna fit I suppose Uh, the hood wasn't affected.
0: No, the hood will fit fine. I'm probably going to have to do... Well, the hood's going to sit where it's going to sit. So it sat lower before. Sure. And now it'll sit higher. But if you looked at where my horn grill was before, it was off about a half an inch. Oh, I suppose. It was turned sideways. And the side marker was tweaked. And the whole fender was kind of smushed because Mm -hmm. it was in about... Half inch to an inch. So that made the the, almost look like it had a box flare. Like if you look down the side of the car. Because
1: when you pull that in, the flare goes up more. it,
0: It popped out. Sure. So I won't have to deal with that anymore. So that'll be gone. But I'm super nervous because I have. People that know what they're doing go, oh, boy, your car is screwed, or your car is (laughs) effed, or that's a lot of work. Are you going to be able to do this? And I'm like, oh, man, I really hope so. And then I kind of explain my plan, which is to cut the bad part out, which is half that inner fender all the way around to the other side (laughs) to where the latch panel is on the other inner fender. All of that's going to be gone, plus the front pan is going to be gone. You will not have a front of your car i will not have a front of my car at all but i do have the jig which will allow yep. me to put the front pan in the right place so you do the pan the pan will be in the right place and then you'll do the inner fender based on the outer fender i'll, I'll do the based on the outer fender yep. and the pan so yep. i've got two sort of reference, reference points. points that makes sense and my thought is, is it cannot be worse than it is or whatever worse i than do my car <laughs> it, it, it can't be worse than it already is so that's that's what i've got to look forward to
1: there i like it that makes sense uh we have to take a moment before we moved on to our history story and talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiasts each month they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, you name it. They put it together, and they send it right to your doorstep. There are actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrolbox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrolbox Premium gets you more of the gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-R-O-L box.com and use the code overcrest if you like at checkout to get $6 off your first month. We should sense we should see if we can put some stuff in that box. Yeah, we're going to be contributing some stuff, so maybe if you subscribe to petrol Box, you'll get some Overcrest
0: gear as well. Yeah. Or you can sign up for our Patreon and also get some Overcrest, overcrest gear. gear as well. Either okay. Way. So, story time. Story so, time. So my knowledge of the the Dakar rally is very limited. Mine was true. I see pictures. I think maybe I know, but something tells me there's a lot more to it. If you took the time to put together an episode based around this, I'm going to guess there's there's a a lot more. All right, let's hear it. All right. So, Chris,
1: before we dig into it, we have to mention that there seems to be a phenomenon happening in the Porsche world. And we've mentioned this before and has even been spilling out in other automotive circles. I'm referring, of course, to safari cars.
0: That's right. right, and they're becoming pretty trendy. Right. It's something it's a that trend. it's it's, a, it's definite trend. Now I feel mm-hmm. like I could almost take my car. Anywhere that I would want to take it and not have to make it a safari car. I suit you mean. But Capable if you're going to be go on like a Dakar or something like that, my car would not make it like 10 feet.
1: Right. So you actually first saw this with Lee Keen's safari 911s. Right. And I've, are, I've driven them. They're yeah. great.
0: They're a lot of fun.
1: So they're basically lifted sports cars with big tires, huge suspension inspired by rally cars of the era. More specifically, they're a throwback to the cars that participated in the safari rally. Hence the name. So the Safari Rally is a rally race held in Kenya. It was first held in 1953 as the East African Coronation Safari as a celebration of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II.
0: Please, all of my people, come to me and celebrate me in Kenya. So this is so so awesome. (laughs) No. Colonialism is so weird. Well, think about it, Chris.
1: Can you imagine at the next presidential inauguration, November, whoever is elected, we won't get into politics. But there's a huge rally
0: race to celebrate it. Yeah, I could just imagine Bernie Sanders going to Utah and being like, all right, guys, let's bring out some combustion cars and drive them around in the dirt. Yes, it would be awesome. It would be, awesome. be so rad. Well, in
1: 1960, the race was renamed the East African Safari Rally and kept that name until 1974 when it became simply the Safari Rally rally so the safari rally was notorious for being by far the most difficult rally in the
0: world rally championship series so hold on a second when i think of the word safari i always think of some rich white dude being like driven around in their land cruiser and hunting or looking at elephants and stuff like that so i i wonder why they decided to name it safari because if you're driving a safari car at 100 miles an hour through the sand you're probably not taking the time to look at elephants and giraffes maybe <laughs> i bet you'd see some wildlife i'm sure you it's probably a really quick safari it's a very fast safari yeah
1: i would like to do that all right so it was very difficult in the world rally championship series in fact it was said that winning this race was the equivalent of winning three other rallies the harsh conditions, such as constantly changing weather and
0: trails filled with sharp rocks, made life very, very difficult so, for the teams and personnel. In your research, I mean, we did a little brief history of Le Mans too. What do you think, in your research, what you found that you think is the more difficult of the two? It's very different racing, obviously. Stop dodging my question. Which one do you think is the is the more difficult on the... I mean, it's probably different. It's different types of difficult for it the driver has different difficulties the team has different responsibilities let me tell you this which is harder to win let me say that let me tell you this first repairs were
1: constantly having to be made to the cars were which were basically an added element of the race that's why cars were always equipped with the multiple spares and huge jacks there weren't any pit stops right safari where compared to Lamar. If you have something go wrong, hopefully you can limp the car into the pits and you have a team there and you can swap out drivers. And it's these long
0: overland safari races are still endurance races. I mean, they had tools with them because they they had They
1: had to be their own mechanic.
0: Yeah, they had to do the basic repairs on their own. Right. So in that mind, this is harder. Sure. Drivers would frequently need to make
1: repairs in the middle of the race in intense heat and humidity. Because guess what? These are held in Africa. Yeah, it's Kenya. It's a little yes. warm. Fun fact, the Safari Rally is set to make a return to the World Rally Championship in 2020 after a 17-year hiatus. We're going to have to get somebody on to tell us about that. That's that going to be, be... kind of cool. But well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, Chris. The Safari Rally was truly a spectacle in the 1960s. So much so that one man wanted to harness all that enthusiasm and replicate it. With his own race.
0: Okay. Enter Jean-Claude Bertrand. I thought you were going to say Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is like just... <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Way out of left field. No,
1: Jean-Claude Bertrand. Bertrand's spirit of racing can be summed up in the following quote I found him say. Quote, you have to help each other. If you don't, you won't make it. <laughs> so that was the original spirit plain and simple, of Bertrand's cross-country rally aspirations. Jean-Claude was a man possessed by giving competitors a run for their money. It was all about providing that once-in-a-lifetime experience to the racers. So he kind of has a different mindset as a race organizer. He's, he's not about, you know, like, let's make a really fair and interesting rally for all the spectators. He's like, if you enter my race, this is going to be a freaking once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. It's going to be intense. It's going to suck, but (laughs) it'll be great. (laughs) Yes, He had previously organized the Bandama rally, a WRC race that was part of the World Rally Championship. And here's my favorite fact about this guy and the races he subsequently organized. One year, he made the Bandama rally so difficult that no one finished. <laughs> no one
0: finished his race. Hey guys, climb over this mountain. There's there's actually a lava <laughs> flow at mile seven. You're gonna have to build a bridge. <laughs> oh my goodness! So there was no
1: politics with Bertrand. It was all or nothing, and he was not one to cut down or reduce the racing stages. So I'm sure at times people were like, "Hey man, this is way too hard. No one's finishing." He's like, "I don't care. Do your best." <laughs> he said, "If you could not make it, tough luck." See you next year.
0: Did he race in the race as well? I don't think so. No, he just was. <laughs> he like, was like he some wanted- <laughs> masochist He was just like <laughs> the yeah. puppeteer of like <laughs> ah, I want to see that guy sweat. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. So inspired by the popularity and the spectacle of the Safari race, Bertrand then dreamt of something.
0: When are the sorry? When are these races happening with Bertrand? What is what? Nineteen sixty. So this is sixty. What kind of cars do we 70s. know? What kind of cars were out there doing this?
1: Ah, uh, it's a lot of French stuff because okay. he's a French guy. So. Citrones yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Okay. Rhinos. yeah uh, so he had done no wonder all these- they didn't make it <laughs> yeah, Good point. <laughs> the Citroen CV5 or the, whatever it is <laughs> the buckboard car. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Bertrand's nuts and he had done a couple of rallies, but he was inspired by the Safari race, which was actually kind of like a legit race which was celebrating the queen, apparently.
0: Yeah. Did so, she go? Was she there? Like, <laughs> and he's like, I want that.
1: <laughs> so Bertrand dreamt of something much, much bigger. He seeked not only. <laughs> nobody's finishing these races. <laughs> so Let's we make need. it bigger. <laughs> he seeked to not only put another rally race on the map, but to completely outdo any other race around the globe. Not only would his harebrained race be better than the safari, it would be bigger. It would span not only multiple countries, but multiple continents, Chris. Sounds good to me. (laughs) A race starting in Africa. This guy wants other people
0: to feel pain. (laughs) I know,
1: he's a masochist. (laughs) I don't even understand it. Absolutely. So a race starting in Africa and ending in Europe. This epic rally would stretch ...from Abidjan, which is a city of uh, Coats d'Ivory on the west coast of Africa, and it would go all the way up to Nice, France. The Abidjan-Nice Rally, as it was aptly named, had its first running on the 25th of December 1975. This transcontinental race took participants straight through the Tenier Desert... Now, I had to look this up. The Tenere Desert is actually part of the Sahara Desert Ooh. and occupies 150,000 square miles. Wow, okay. It's massive. So the race stages themselves were also massive. One stage, from Abidjan to Niamey totaled nearly 1100 miles.
0: Okay, so when we think of regular rally stages, we You're think like, of... Oh, it'll take like three minutes through the forest, right? Yeah, well, it's usually longer than that, okay. but it's like seven to ten miles or yes. something like that, or that would be a long stage. That would be a long stage. <laughs>
1: You're right. This is 1100 miles, which took competitors as long as 31 hours for one stage. And they're, again, they're not pit stopping, they're stopping to whatever, like, it's just go through the desert.
0: With a lot of water, so you don't die.
1: Yeah, you'd have to. So the race didn't follow the standard rally format either. On a traditional rally race, competitors are started one by one with their times recorded. The starts are then staggered so that they are racing against the clock, not head to head. Bertrand's race was different. (laughs) (laughs) The stages had mass starts where racers started out on the line in the middle of the desert, side by side. Do we
0: know what Bertrand did for a living? Do we know this? What he did? Like, was he I, just like a philanthropist, or he was a crazy guy? He I was, don't
1: know. Uh, no, I don't guy, know. He's okay. a madman.
0: This guy lived in a castle. <laughs> <Okay>. Probably <laughs> got messed up in the head in World War II. Is my okay. guess. There's probably something yeah. bad happened in World War II. What kind of car do you think he drove? Hmm. He's, I bet he's he drove probably very. Gotti. Yeah. yeah, he probably oh, drove a Bugatti, like a French, like an older Bugatti. Oh, like a 1930s, yeah, 40s Bugatti. yeah like some boat tail was, thing. It's definitely
1: French, you know. He's probably yeah. a very
0: proud. No, he didn't French live in a team. castle. He lived in a chateau.
1: Oh, it's definitely a chateau. Yeah, She yeah, had a chateau,
0: yes. Chateau Bertrand. <laughs> it would be the driveway is like six stages, six, six stages <laughs> to get up to the driveway. Yeah, you have to go over a mountain. and <laughs> so a So the sand, guy, dude. guy delivers some the milk. By the time he gets there, all the milk is spoiled. The, yeah. Oh man. <laughs>
1: So, another stage of the rally was over 1,600 miles. Only four competitors completed that grueling marathon stage. So, Chris, as you can imagine, the type of competitors that would partake in such a race were a rare breed. They were people that were brave, adventurous, and probably a little crazy themselves. Yeah, for sure. People like Theory Sabine. Thierry Sabine was born on July 13th, 1949, in the French town of nelly sur growing up in France? If you said that to anybody in France, they wouldn't have any idea. What, <laughs> no, no, it, no, no, no. Well, excuse me, sir, where? Yeah, this is for entertainment value, only not for
0: accuracy. Sure. <laughs> that should be the disclaimer at the beginning of every one of my stories. You know what's funny is that if we were in France and like an emergency happened, yeah. no one would ever be able to get there. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, it's, it's here, it's here. It's, here it's. Sorry, sir, where? Someone was murdered, where? Someone's bleeding out, where? And you're still, they can't find it. I would person still dies. keep the accent, too, though. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's
1: bleeding out <laughs> <laughs> i had one guy tell me my accent was pretty spot on
0: yeah right i forget what episode it wasn't was. anyway that was french that's for yeah, sure probably
1: not so growing up in france this theory guy his occupation was listed as a wrangler which as i learned is exactly what you think it
0: is Someone who wrangles something.
1: Theory was a professional horse handler,
0: basically. Yeah. Well, if you look at Wrangler jeans, the little logo is the little, the little noose, the little yeah. loop. Yeah. In addition, he appeared to
1: also be a fan of motorcycles, which I found fitting.
0: Yeah. There, there you know. go. That's good. All right.
1: <laughs> All right. So it wasn't long before Theory Sabian got involved in racing said steel horses. As it turned out, he had a knack for racing these motorcycles, especially in the desert. Now, there, that's
0: hardcore, man. <laughs> yeah,
1: After hearing of the first running of the insane Abidjan Nice rally, Theory entered himself and his motorcycle the very next year. He's like, yes, this is this my kind race. This is made for me. Race, for sure. I'm just going to wrangle that race, Chris. <laughs> 100%. All right, so after much preparation and having gotten himself and his bike down to the starting point in Abidjan, theory started off on the second running of this epic race. However, do you remember how I mentioned most of the race takes place in this massive desert? Yeah. Well, at one point, after the competitors had spread out throughout the course... Cause, remember, they're all starting literally in a line and just head to head, Just go, go. But when each course or each stage is like eleven hundred miles, you tend to get spread out.
0: Yeah, I mean, is this is it point A to point B? Was there no directions? Was there no? Was there there's wasn't supposed like a? To be there a, a, wasn't like a flag stuck no in the ground. no flagmen. No. Okay. No.
1: So you kind of just like, well, I know I
0: need to go like northwest until I hit something. I, see, I really like that because it. You know, if that was me, pl- I would like to plan that with my route plan where I was going to go. I would right. get out a map. I'd be like a topographical map. Oh, this looks like pr- this is pretty good. I'd get out Google Satellite View, which you're not doing in 1974. <laughs> no, certainly not. But I would be all over planning a route through. That That would be fun. I,
1: I don't know if you got to know the route ahead of time, though.
0: Oh, oh, man. I mean? man. You may not have <laughs> known the hard, route. That's hardcore.
1: All right. So... After the race starts, it's over a long time, and at one point, all the competitors had spread out throughout the course, which is basically a massive desert, Right. and theory broke down. Even more bad news arised when he realized he had lost his compass. Somewhere in the earlier stage. Like, you're not going to go back in the desert and find your compass. So he ventured out into the vastness of the desert on foot, hoping to stumble across another racer and be rescued right he's figuring i gotta find someone else they're they're gonna i'm gonna see someone we're in the middle of a race
0: right yeah in yeah. this massive desert well okay but i'm just imagining the vulture sound and the vulture <sighs> circling oh, i don't even know if there was a vulture and the sun there. just they're like so beating. far out
1: so his water supply also soon ran dry because you're figuring i'm only needing enough to ride to the next stage however long that is and as more and more time passed the situation grew more dire As day turned to night, not a single soul stumbled upon theory. As the sun rose the next day, so did the temperature. He wandered the desert, finding small stones with condensation from the night before on them, and he sucked on the stones, pulling out any tiny amount of moisture, starving off thirst. Another night and day came and went, without shelter, without water, with nothing but sand for hundreds of miles, literally. As Thierry was nearing death, he felt a, he heard a faint sound in the distance. As it grew louder, he saw the helicopter crest over a massive sand dune. After 3 days and 3 nights in the desert, Thierry was rescued when the race organizer, Jean-Michel Seen, who had set up by helicopter to find him. Now Chris, imagine going through such a harrowing experience. Imagine being thousands of miles from home, alone, dying of thirst in the middle of the desert, under the baking sun. You're probably sunburnt. You're just... Your I, lips are cracked. I can't imagine and... it. You, you might feel regret. You might... Like, I would probably curse my own naivety for starting out on such a dangerous race, right? You'd be like, what was I thinking? You might feel helpless. You might feel anger towards the desert. Like, this, this is terrible and never want to come back. Or you might be theory and feel super excited Theory Sabine wanted to share the immensity of that desert. He thought his experience in there changed him. And this desert was so beautiful and inspiring that he wanted to share it. Well, when all this. the
0: water shrinks out of your brain <laughs> and you start to hallucinate, I'm sure there's all kinds of things that seem beautiful at that time.
1: Theory Sabine wanted to share the immensity of that desert with as many other riders as he could. Rather than simply returning to the abidjan Nice rally or maybe helping to promote it. No, no, no. He wanted to improve it. He wanted to make it bigger, better, and more
0: challenging. It was more lethal.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he As would if go having on. his
0: tongue swell up in his mouth wasn't enough. Yeah.
1: So the I didn't include it here, but I found in a later reading that uh, the Jean-Michel whatever guy that uh, had actually organized the race, and he was the crazy guy, Hold on, let me find his name so I can get this right. So you remember, John Claude was the guy that actually organized the race. Yep. So when he heard about this story and he met Theory Sabine, he basically said, you were dead in the desert and you basically got a second life. Yeah. So he kind of like felt inspired along with him. So he wanted to share this and he wanted to improve the race and he wanted to make it more challenging. He would go on to create the most challenging, dangerous and legendary motorsport Event on the planet, the Paris to Dakar Rally, and as it turns out, theory was not only a really good rider, although aside from breaking down, <laughs> he was also a really talented race organizer. Er, organizer. In only one year's time, on Boxing Day, nineteen seventy-eight, one hundred and eighty-two competitors were lined up in Paris to set out on the first Dakar Rally. The journey would cover ten thousand kilometers. The route was set to cross six countries, France, Algeria, Niger, Mali, Upper Volta, and Senegal. More than 3,000 kilometers of that route were set as specials, off-road sections that crossed dunes, mud, camel grass, rock, and
0: seas of sand dunes. Anytime you're passing through multiple biomes, that's when you know it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious. Now, it's worth noting that although the first Dakar
1: rally began in 1978, it ended on January 14th, 1979, and is thus known as the 1979 Dakar Rally. Okay, so the first Dakar Rally didn't have separate vehicle classes either. Instead, cars, trucks, and motorcycles all competed together. Of the 182 competitors to enter the first race, 90 of them were riding on motorcycle which seems a little crazy.
0: Well, it's especially considering we think of motorcycles that would do this today versus motorcycles that are doing this back then. Back, I, mean, I mean, we're not talking high tech here.
1: No. So in case you are interested, the most popular bike was by far the Yamaha 500 XT. And in fact, including the 38 Yamaha 500 XTs in the race was the French Yamaha factory team. Yamaha wasn't the only manufacturer to recognize the supposed promotional potential of this crazy new race. Honda wanted to showcase its new trail bike and offered entrants of the first car Rally a discount if
0: they purchased the Honda
1: XL250S and rode it.
0: They didn't just give them one. They still made them buy it at a discount. Correct. (laughs) Hey, you want to go risk your life and possibly die in the desert? We'll give you a discount. We'll give you a discount. (laughs) Here's a punch card, (laughs) brother.
1: Right. So that part's kind of crappy. But the deal also included complimentary factory support.
0: There you go. That's key. That's the
1: key. Hold on. This is what you get. You get a DC-3 airplane, an eight-man support team that included four engineers and two Unimogs to carry tents and gear. But
0: you still need to buy the bike. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Is this I like a litmus test or I something? I don't you, understand it. We just want to make sure you're serious. So are you got to at least All right, buy the now bike. Now you get the
1: jet and everything else. <laughs> All right. So 29 Honda XLS motorcycles participated in the 1979 Dakar rally, and 15 actually crossed the finish line in Senegal. So, pretty good. Even before the first running of the Dakar, however, criticism over the amount of money being spent by factory teams began. It seemed not everyone was impressed with Honda's heavy support team of aircraft engineers and Unimogs or with Yamaha's Piper Aztec flying support Unimog and Range Rovers. So even that Yamaha French team were like, all right, we're going to have a support plane. We're going to have several Unimogs, several Range Rovers with the carry parts and everything else. At least one journalist noted that, quote, what was to be a human adventure turned into a race where money and showing off are highlighted. On Boxing Day, nineteen seventy-eight. What is Boxing Day, Chris? Is that the twenty-sixth? I don't.
0: Re- I keep hearing about Boxing Day. I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is.
1: I think it's the twenty-sixth. The day after Christmas is Boxing Day. Okay, something like that. Uh, anyways, on Boxing Day, nineteen seventy-eight, at nine
0: fifteen a.m., Paris deputy mayor Monsieur Diaz. Boxing Day was a traditional day off for servants and the day when they received a Christmas box from their master. So it's the day after Christmas, and they get a gift yeah, from their the 26th. master. Because they have to work on Christmas, so they give them the day off.
1: Well, of course. How else are you going to make that big Christmas ham?
0: Yeah, exactly. All right.
1: All right. So on Boxing Day, which we now know is the 26th of December 1978, at 9.15 a.m., Paris Deputy Mayor, Monsieur de Haise, raised the flag on the first Dakar rally. So what's different about this one versus the other crazy race? The other crazy race went from Africa up to Paris. This one, he's like, all right, well, let's start in Paris and then go down. Sure.
0: To Descartes. Why not make it get harder instead of easier?
1: Yeah. So 172 vehicles tore out of the Palace Pal- de Trocadero. See, I didn't have my accent, so it didn't and work. You can dial it in. They tore out of the Palace de Trocadero. Trocadero. Now, if you look at a map, you might notice that there's a big body of water between France and Africa. Known as the Mediterranean.
0: Yes. I'm aware of the Mediterranean Sea.
1: Right. So when the quote race started, my understanding is that the competitors merely traveled down to the first actual competitive stage, located at a military base near the city of Orleans. So they didn't drive from Paris to They well, I'll get there. Okay. But not it's not like a race where like you just go. Right. It's you, you travel from stage to stage. Right. And you're right, right, right. racing during the stages. Gotcha. But part of the race of any rally, because that's the same with, like, the uh, at least Rally America, like, you have to drive your car on the street to the stage. Right. And that's part of it. Uh, so, anyways, so when the race started, yeah, they went down to the city of Orleans, which, since us Americans are more familiar with New Orleans, I would like to call this French city Old Orleans from now on. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So the competition in Old Orleans was a short 3.6-kilometer contest in muddy, rutted terrain that established the starting order for the next stage in Algiers. So this was basically qualifying. Sure. The riders then continued on to Marseille's where... Marsal... There you go. Marsal where their vehicles were placed on a boat, and they spent the next 24 hours sailing across the Mediterranean to Algiers, where they would set off on the continent of Africa.
0: And that's where the things got
1: serious. That's I where imagine. things get serious. So the first two legs of the race were fairly uneventful, all things considered. Okay. However, the third stage was set from Tamanrasset to Agadez, Niger, through the heart of the desert. According to one account, Things went wrong within the first two kilometers.
0: Are ins- they all had like a sand mode, like a Jeep. Yeah, oh yeah, no, of like course. Like you just turn yeah, the yeah, knob yeah, and it goes it. to sand. Especially the
1: motorcycles, like the tires get bigger. And yeah, you like just hit
0: you- the sand mode. And then when you're on the on the, uh, on the the rocks, you go to rock mode yeah, or gravel mode. Yeah, and then when I'm you're sure on tarmac, there's a tarmac mode. And it raises and lowers the ride and height. Now, and now GPS
1: like, too, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So it tells them which way to go. Exactly,
0: plus the air-conditioned seats. Oh, that would be <laughs> yeah. nice. Yeah.
1: So, all right, starts out this third stage. Within two kilometers. Our intrepid organizer, Thierry Sabine, was watching with binoculars and quickly realized that everyone had taken the wrong fork in the trail. So
0: if they just lemmings, they just felt like one guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So here's
1: what actually happened. It's believed that the journalists who had departed in advance, so it's, I'm picturing you. You're like, all right, I got to get set up down the track with yep, my camera yep. and get my shot. And yep. you're either like in your car or whatever, your land cruiser probably. Sure. And so you, go with that. All right. We're, okay. So the, the race is going to go
0: here. So I go over here and I'm going to set up. Looking at a map. I'm going to get up on this hilltop. Yeah. yeah, yeah perfect. I've seen your
1: process. Yeah. All right. So the journalists who had departed in advance of the riders took the wrong route. After that, the first group of riders simply followed them down the wrong path. They saw the, tr- the tracks. Yeah. And just, oh, go this way. So when Theory Sabine realized what was happening, he had to decide if he should let the first Dakar rally derail into the desert of Asamakaka. Where? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's Asamakaka.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, what, is, what is that in English?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Butt poop. <laughs> I think it's butt poop. Doesn't butt poop. <laughs> uh, so yeah, basically the rally was going to derail into the ass poop, death <laughs> <back>. <laughs> into Assamakaka, or he could send someone out to block the route and redirect the rest of the competitors. Now. From what we know of this theory guy, I'm surprised he didn't let the competitors drift aimlessly through the desert in the wrong direction. <laughs> so they could hallucinate. To, quote, <laughs> Experience the desert. Like he
0: had. Yeah, you too can swallow your tongue and see
1: the Virgin yeah. Mary on the third night. Nope, but instead he chose to send someone out to redirect
0: this pack of riders. Now here's the question. Mm. How do you catch them? Yes. What? I don't know. <laughs> it had to have been a helicopter or something. I don't right? Know. I mean, they had to fly out on a helicopter. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, out in the desert.
0: Hold on. Meanwhile, out in the desert,
1: <laughs> Rudy Potesk was an experienced cross-country and rough-terrain rider who had taken a strong lead. Christian Rayer remembers whizzing past the camera crews at the edge of the track as he lay semi-recumbered against his bike. As the hours passed, he remembers thinking that if he was able to catch up to Rudy, he knew he'd be up there with the top competitors. This Rudy guy's good, right? However, as more and more miles flew by, Rager began to become concerned that he was running low on fuel to make matters worse. The refilling depot and support trucks were nowhere to be seen. They didn't realize they were on the wrong route, right? I suppose there's no
0: support because all the other trucks are just (laughs) lumbering that way. They're lumbering (laughs)
1: along. So then he spotted a dust cloud from another motorcycle. Ah, he suspected he was finally catching up to Patesk. but wait, the bike was coming at him. Patesque was heading back towards him. By the time the two riders intersected, their machines were both sputtering on fumes. Soon, they were joined by their team captain, Jean-Claude Oliver, and other riders they began to drift in. Before long, there were eight or nine of these the top riders standing around trying to figure out what had happened. They're like, we're all basically out of fuel and we don't see anything. Like, what, where are we? What's going on? They took out their maps and estimated they might have run too far southwest in the direction of Agadaz. The group managed to make their way to an armed encampment in the desert. Here's what I don't understand.
0: You're in the middle of the desert. Where is a better place to hide guns, I guess? An armed (laughs)
1: encampment, you see? To their surprise, the group had stumbled upon a group of
0: Japanese golfers.
1: (laughs) You can't make up this story, Chris. It, I don't know. It was
0: an armed encampment with Japanese golfers. Yes, that's all I got out of this. I don't know. I don't know. That's Now that is a shady business deal.
1: There's only one account of this. <laughs> I found one story. I thought you were going to say there's only
0: one accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: they only had one accountant. Can you imagine?
0: Well, you gotta How be do able, you golf with you only gotta one keep, accountant? You got to keep the secrets the, of the arms deal. Okay. So, so It was the Yakuza for sure. <laughs>
1: I don't know. I don't know. All right. So when the Japanese refused to provide any fuel, the team captain, JC. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They're (laughs) golfing. I don't know. What what does the green look like? I don't know if this is... Where's the water coming from? I don't understand from? any of it, Chris. I don't know if they actually just made all this is up. Is it just a giant bunker? I am thinking they all had, like, a simultaneous, like, weird, uh, like, mirage situation. You know, they're all hallucinating from dehydration. And they... I, but regardless, there is an armed encampment with Japanese men golfing who don't want to give up their fuel, mind you. Okay. So when the Japanese refused to provide any fuel, the team captain, J.C. Oliver, got angry. Using the best English he can muster, because keep in mind they're French, and being as polite as possible, because he's French, he explained that he and his companions were representing an honorable and important Japanese company, because they're the Yamaha riders. Yeah, there you go. Oliver explained to the Japanese golfers that, quote, the land of... (laughs)
0: Are you going to be able to make it through this or what?
1: <laughs> Quote, the land of the rising sun's reputation would be tainted if the world learned that several honorable Japanese countrymen refused assistance in the open African desert in the middle of an internationally recognized competition. It's true. <laughs> Rare recounts that the Japanese were silent for a few moments and began muttering in Japanese. A few minutes later, all of the riders were fueled up and I'd even managed to procure a local guide on camelback to direct them back to our lit. So we'll just go in first gear all the way back behind this camel. <sighs> and that's how they arrived in our lit. In a convoy of riders following a camel five hours behind schedule. Ooh. <laughs> But hey, they got a story to tell. In addition, they learned that they would each be given a seven-hour penalty for venturing off course. (laughs) Rayner later expressed his thoughts on the turn of events. Quote, it was a sporting scandal, but theory refused to compromise and no one else was willing to take to our defense. Thus, this is how we lose the Dakar on the field, even when you are amongst the best.
0: It, you kind of feel for him a little bit, you right? Do. You know, it's it's just such a weird story. I don't understand it. If only they would have ran into someone that would just give them the gas. That probably would have solved the entire problem. Well, it's a good thing they found the Japanese armed golfers in the <laughs>
1: first place. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was the third stage of the rally. Okay, the beginning of the fourth stage marked the first fatal accident of the Dakar Rally in the first annual. Dakar Dakar Rally, rally. okay. Yes. A young French expat named Patrice Dodin was approaching the start of the stage with his helmet unbuckled. The race hadn't started, Chris. He was just riding up to the starting line. He tried to fasten it while riding, but lost control of his bike. His helmet rolled off, and he struck his head on a rock. Oh, no. He was immediately attended by medical staff and airlifted to Paris, but died a few days later in hospital.
0: That's that's tragic. Of to, to go out there and be on the third stage and just fall off your bike and hit your head on a rock. I oh know. man. Yeah. What a way to go.
1: In addition, the train the terrain of the fourth stage was more difficult than expected. The route had been established a year earlier, but had since deteriorated considerably. Deep ruts made it difficult for the vehicles, while heavy vegetation alongside the route made passing dangerous. It was during just such a maneuver that the legendary Jean Claude Oliver of the Yamaha team, I think he was also the one that was talking angrily to the Japanese guys. So he was he fractured his wrist after tangling up with a Range Rover. Which tangling up with a Range Rover doesn't sound like a
0: good activity. In the how do you run into a Range Rover in the middle of nowhere? Tangle
1: up with a Range Rover?
0: (laughs) I'm just thinking you've got a lot of space. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, they did say that there was uh what heavy vegetation alongside the route.
0: Oh, okay. So, so we're no, I think we're outside no longer of in the, the desert. desert. Okay. Yeah,
1: it would have been hard to get tangled with a Range
0: Rover. So he was just trying to pass the He pass was trying the.
1: to pass the Range Rover and got tangled up. Oliver rode on to win the stage, but had to withdraw from the race because of the injury. Which sucks. You get tangled up, you're injured, you win that stage, and you're like, yeah, I gotta. Got to bail. Yeah, that sucks. The Yamaha team suffered a second loss when Rudy Patesk fell in a rocky area and fractured his leg. Also not fun. (laughs) That's one way to put it. (laughs) It's not fun. Uh, The fourth and fifth stages didn't have, or the fifth and sixth stages, rather, didn't have any stories associated with them. The seventh stage, however, from Bamako Bamako to Nioro was said to be filled with holes, quote, as big as bathtubs. And the soft sand that made it difficult for the 4x4s to manage, and all but impossible for two-wheeled drivers. And, if it was difficult for the cars and trucks, it was completely unfeasible for the motorcycles. Only one rider completed the stage on time. Philippe Vassard on a Honda XL250S. Probably because he had all that factory support. Yeah, absolutely. He a Unimog riding in front of him, and... Regardless, the organizer theory made another controversial move and altered the rules by extending the stage. This was to avoid having only a single competitor finish the rest of the race. One guy made it. You can't say like, oh, I guess he's the only one that goes on. Yeah, that's no good. So on the eighth and final stage, the road was less difficult, but mechanical problems were abound. Just one day from the finish line and the youngest racer, 18-year-old Alain Q blew the engine on his en- on his Honda 125XLS. Jean-Claude Fignol, there's a lot of Jean-Claude's racing. might as well. Jean-Claude Fignol had the same problem throwing a rod on his BMW 800GS. Hubert Orol, who would go on to win three Dakar rallies, was third overall, but had to drop out due to mechanical failure on his Yamaha 500XT. Cyril Nouveau, also faced critical engine problems in this stage, but his support crew had a spare engine
0: and was able to replace it overnight. Remarkably... Why wouldn't you have a spare engine? Why I wouldn't everybody have a spare engine? Have you a could put spare it in, bike! Put it in your backpack. Have a spare... Yeah, you could, I guess. What I mean, you're I not going to have a spare bike. That would be illegal. But you should be able to have... I mean, that doesn't seem like there's much rules at this point. Nope. It's a run what you brung. So if you yep. have an engine in your backpack, what's the big problem?
1: Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, so remarkably, this Cyril Nouveau was the one who won the first Dakar rally. Even more remarkable was the fact that he hadn't taken first place on a single stage. Years later, Liana Sanz, the fastest woman to ever compete in the Qatar, summed it up perfectly. It's not the fastest that wins the Dakar, but the most consistent.
0: After its inaugural running... Well, that's rally racing in a nutshell right there.
1: Right. After its inaugural running, the Dakar rapidly grew in popularity, with 216 vehicles taken to start in 1980, which is the next year, and 291 in 1981. Cyril Nouveau won the event for a
0: second time in 1980, They should just line – anybody that wants to go do this, they should just line them all up, have them whip their nuts out, (laughs) and then they just take a caliper, and they just like, all right, 13 centimeters. You're probably going to win this race. (laughs) Or you have testicular cancer. (laughs) That's what this is. This is a huge ball-measuring contest, right? This race, you have to have some serious cojones. To get the out there and, yeah. and, and Asakaka and, <laughs> 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 right. and put it on the line. Oh
1: my goodness. So yeah, Cyril Nouveau won the event for a second time in 1980. Hubert Aruil or Oriol taking honors in 1981 on a BMW. And by this stage, the rally had already begun to attract the participation of famous names from elsewhere in motorsport, such as the legendary Jackie Ix. Ix won the car class in 1983 and having a close working relationship with Porsche Motorsport convinced Porsche to enter the Dakar the following year in 1984. Now, that has nothing to do with the story, but I just found that interesting because you know, Porsche has been in the Dakar rally. Yep. It was basically Ix who said, guys, you should get in on this.
0: Well, the car is honestly perfect for it. It is. O- oil cooled, yep. you know, very little systems running the car. It's, right. It's simple. Yeah. Fast
1: forward to 2001, which was the last time that the rally used the familiar Paris-Dakar route. Instead, starting in Algiers in 2002. The 2006 event actually started in Lisbon, Spain. Then, in the first time since its inception, the 2008 Dakar rally was canceled altogether due to security concerns after al-Qaeda's direct threats against the event. This is, after all, going through the Middle East. Yeah, I suppose. Osama bin Laden literally said, I will kill anyone who runs the race.
0: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so, that's, what a guy.
1: What a guy. Yeah. What a guy. <clears throat> So I don't know much about his son, but Omar Osama bin Laden, the son of Osama bin Laden, attracted news coverage in 2008 by promoting himself as an ambassador of peace and proposed a 3,000-mile horse race across North Africa as a replacement to the Dakar Rally, with sponsors' money. They, oh, hold on, it was sponsors' money going to support child victims of war. Saying, "Quote: I heard the rally was stopped because of Al Qaeda. I don't think they're going to stop me."
0: Well, I don't know anything about I think about they're just him. jealous just that they don't that have cars. So you, if you're going to bring those. <laughs> you're going to bring those <laughs> those contraptions through here. We're going to blow them up. In fact, we've got a bunch of bombs that do just that. And then so then they just ride horses instead. That's not a good replacement. I don't replacement. know. I think the
1: sun was trying to
0: be just trying to do something, right? right? Okay. So,
1: I again don't know anything about him. I didn't look him up. I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Interesting, though. Regardless, the next year saw that a car rally move to South America in 2009 where it was held until
0: 2009. I have to say the most likely vehicle to complete the Dakar Rally would be a Toyota Hilux with a 50 caliber gun on the back.
1: Actually, so yeah, I mean, Maybe if, they just wanted to enter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a bad joke. No, it's that's that's true. I days. mean, if it, they would have been able to get the gas from the Japanese guy with the <laughs> oh, no cabinet. kidding. They would have been able to get the gas. <laughs> They've got the Hilux, which is super reliable. No problem. Get. I mean, if anybody's in their way, <laughs> they're not going to get uh, tangled up with a Land Rover. I mean, that's not very sportsman-like, though, to just shoot your competitors. Eh, that's just kind of their
1: style their mo i guess yeah all right so the dakar rally moved to south america in 2009 where it stayed until 2019 and as it turns out we're right now in the midst of the 2020 dakar
0: rally right now it's going on, They're right on like now.
1: stage four right now
0: wow okay Which, we're, we're, can i watch it can we turn it on right yeah, now yeah you can oh it's online might, all right we're gonna have to do that yeah. after the podcast is over so here.
1: The 2020 Dakar Rally is the 42nd running. How do I not know
0: about this? How How do do I I I not know know it either? I was like, "Wait, where's 2020?" I was like, "Oh gosh, it's already going." It seems like something I would want to. I mean, it's got to be tough because how do you cover that event? It's not just going in a circle within eyesight of you, right? For four hours? Yeah, no, you have to move a lot. You have to move a lot, but that's. I mean, they used to do television televised broadcasts of the old offshore racing stuff, exactly from a helicopter the whole time,
1: which is how they have to cover. I would watch it. I would too, so we'll have to look that up. So this is the 42nd running of the event, and after 11 years in South America, the event was moved to Saudi Arabia. So organizers admitted that there was a hesitation before the decision to hold the event in a country which had been under fire for human rights abuses and its recent involvement in the war in Yemen, so there's some politics there. But the contract to host the event in Saudi Arabia has been signed for the next five years, although it's rumored that it might actually be for the next ten The total rally distance is just shy of 4,900 miles. So, not as long. No,
0: but still pretty serious. Right. So, although it's cool to see the rally still underway. If you told me, hey, we're going to go do a rally, they've got to use 400 miles across the Nevada desert, I would go, wow, that's really incredible. So, you're saying 4,900 miles? I mean, it's it's all relative. It's it's It's, still.
1: Yeah. (laughs) A good point. Good point. uh, This is a big deal. Yeah. So, although it's cool to see that this rally is still underway, I find it oddly unsettling that the race hasn't even been to Dakar in over 11 years. 12 years, I think. Sure. You know, it's just, I mean, it's interesting they still call it the Dakar. Well, that's branding. That is branding. So I can't help but wonder what the man who founded it might have thought. Unfortunately, we can't ask him.
0: Of course, it will make people sad because he was so charming. So charming. What a guy. He was like a general, a kind of Romo, a Montgomery. They're different. We don't know how or why, but they're different. And come once every 10 years, 20 years.
1: So that was Jackie X
0: talking referring
1: about to Thierry Sabine, the race organizer. So he says these type of men of only car. come
0: around every 10 years. I mean, I would say it's probably longer than that. Yeah. I mean, these type of men are very rare. So what happened to Thierry?
1: This was an article in the Washington Post, January 16th, 1986. Thierry Sabine died as he lived, chasing adventure in the Sahara Desert beneath the glare of the mass media. A controversial Frenchman who inspired and organized the annual 22-day 8,700-mile Dakar Paris Rally, one of the world's toughest automobile races. Sabine was killed last night when his helicopter crashed into the sand dunes near the, near the famed West African caravan town of Timbigu in Mali. Sabine, who was not participating in this year's race, was searching for vehicles stuck in the desert sands. The four others in the helicopter with them also died in the crash. Race officials say that the rally will continue, in line with Sabine's own wishes. Quote, He died in the country he loved, on a rally which he created. His wish was that whatever happened to him, the race would continue, said Philippe Borsalt a representative of Honda Motor Company, one of the sponsors of that year's rally. A dashing figure in his white jumpsuit and long blonde hair, Sabine appeared to relish his reputation as a romantic adventurer leading a mighty
0: caravan into the desert. And that, Chris, is the story of the Dakar. You can only hope to have that kind of legacy. you can only hope well we'll leave it on that note um that was great thank you it sounds like uh, something we need to go turn on find on the tv immediately right so we're gonna in the podcast now and go see what we can find out about uh, the rally that's going on right now take care guys we will see you next week